Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I got two phones, one for the plug and one for the load. I got two phones, one for the bitches and one for the dog. Think I need two more. Lamp up and I'm ring, ring, ring. Count money while it ring, ring, ring. Trap jumping, I'm ring, ring, ring. Welcome into an NBA Finals edition of the WEI Celtics podcast. It's been a while, but we're back. I'm your host, Sam Packer, joined, as always, by Jared Weiss. How are you doing today, Jared? I'm doing great because we have the most important man in the world when it comes to draft previews, because even though it's a Finals edition, we're doing a draft preview first to kick it off. So before we talk to Danny LaRue, we got to talk to our meanest man, BFF of BFFs, Kevin O'Connor. Yo, what's going on, guys? Hold on, Kevin. I gotta put you on blast for one second because I've been trying to get you on the podcast for about nine months now, and I see you on Raining Jays the other week, and I you I right, you I right, but I just want to know what's up. No, I was on this podcast first before Raining Jays, though. That was some kind of side piece, little like twenty minute thing. I'm talking. <laughs> I want that real full lowdown, and you just deny me, deny me, deny me. Play hard to get, and then I see you running with Jay King and John Corrales. Hey, man, gonna do what I gotta do. All right, you for real, dog. You for real. All right, Kevin O'Connor, if you guys don't know, has his own NBA draft guide, and I believe you just released the latest update. Is that correct? Yes, the latest update came out today. 60 full profiles, team previews for every team, mock draft, all that good stuff. So that's out today. It's one of the best resources I've seen. It's very well designed. I don't know who you got to do that or if you did that yourself, but it's a great... Brad Fishkin. Bradfishkin.com if you want something designed. Shout out to B-Rad. Very well designed, but the information in there is what's key. Um, I don't know about you, Jared, but I've been stealing most of my draft takes directly from Kevin. Oh, I only steal about half of them from Kevin. Oh, okay. Well, you're a little bit more informed than I am. But we're here. We're a Celtics podcast, and the Celtics have the number three pick, and... Kevin, if you were Danny Ainge and no trades happened and you're stuck with that number three pick, who are you going with? I mean, right now it's probably Dragon Bender for me. I just think Bender fits what they like to do. You, you look at, like, Joris Sarebko and Jay Crowder last year, how much they like to switch on defense with those guys. Bender could potentially do the same thing. He's a seven-footer who can shoot threes. He's a great passer. He's the type of guy he, he'll make, like, Kevin Love-level outlet passes. I mean, I, I just like, I think Bender's the type of guy who can make a nightly positive impact, even though he might not have, like, superstar upside. So if they draft Dragon Bender, does that mean that you're not keeping Kelly Olenek when his contract runs out? Um, I mean, I think, I think those guys can play together. I don't, I don't necessarily think Bender spells the end of Kelly Olenek, though. I, I, it's hard to predict the future. I mean, roster turnover happens so quickly in the NBA, it's really hard to say. Now we know we've seen Bender already shoot really well from the left corner and the right wing, and then he's just awful above the break. Besides, like kind of like right above the break on the right side, what is what does he need to do to go from being a stretch big to a dynamite three point shooter? 
just keep doing what he's doing, honestly. I mean, he just turned 18 last uh, last November, I think. He's he's improved quickly as a three-point shooter. I think he'll be fine as long as he continues quickening his release. Um, that's really the only hurdle right now for him. I think his form is largely fine. Now, is there any concern about him being so young, especially trying to align him with the current timetable of the roster? Are you going to have to wait three years for him to make a, a significant impact? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you will have to wait for him. But, the, I mean, one question I feel like a lot of people ask is, like, will he bust? I feel like Bender is one of the safer 18-year-old players. I just I just look at his game, and I don't see how he fails. The question is, like, how good he'll be. And, yeah, you will have to wait for him to really make that nightly impact because he's, I mean, playing overseas right now, his role is to stand in the corner and shoot threes. That's really it. And Danny Ames said earlier today at his press conference about Bender that they got more out of the practice they they saw with him and the one-on-one and the one-on-o uh, workout they had than any of the games. And that's probably because they got to put him into different situations that you didn't see, that you haven't seen all season long, him, from, him playing for Maccabi. So, yeah, you'll have to wait for him. He'll play a similar role as a rookie wherever he is, just standing in the corner. But over time, I think you'll see him play more of a role, maybe in year two or year three. Have you ever scouted a EuroLeague player that you thought like he was being utilized even like remotely the way he would be in the NBA on his EuroLeague team, at least coming pre-draft? You mean like as a young player? Uh, yeah, like, like they're, they're almost always basically like stand in the corner or just like get defensive assignments. They very rarely actually feature in the way that they would be in the NBA. I think if they play for a crappy team like Timothy Luau right now, oh, maybe yeah. long term, then they'll they'll um, play similar to that. But normally, yeah, like on all the, all the top teams, they never will play a role that you expect them or project them to play in the NBA. But I mean, Luau is in a unique situation. That team is kind of built to feature their players, and it's kind of good for scouting purposes. All right, let's say the Dragon Man does not uh, pique Danny's interest. He goes and sees him. Maybe uh, there's some sort of Seinfeld-esque uh, mix-up, and there's really hard feelings there. Who else would you think the Celtics would target, if not Bender? Who else is in the mix there at the number three pick? I mean, for me, well, let's start with today's kind of hot topic. DX had Marquise Chris going to the Celtics for the third pick. He's one guy, and the reason why I kind of felt this way ahead of time is because he's just arguably the best athlete in the draft and he's already pretty good at basketball. He's six foot nine. He shoots threes. He only shot thirty five percent last year, but I think he's a better shooter than his percentages percentages indicate. Outstanding athlete, great first step. He could be the type of guy that like plays small ball four for you or even in real small ball lineups if he learns to defend small ball center. Um, then maybe, of course, his buddy Heald. I don't know if they had as much interest in him unless he shows off an improved uh, ball handling ability. But if he does, then I, I mean, look, with Buddy Heald, just two years ago, he was not that good of a jump shooter. And now he's the best shooter in the draft. So maybe two years from now, he makes similar strides as a ball handler, and, the, and he's taking people off the dribble and scoring. I mean, it, we don't know. I think it's unfair whenever people say, oh, he's a senior, he's a junior, he can't improve, he won't improve that much, because these guys improve all the time. It's just about finding the right ones, and Buddy Hills might be if he shows that progress uh, in pre-draft workouts. And that was my next question. We were talking about it earlier today on Twitter. There is some sort of massive misconception that if you're an upperclassman, then your ceiling is lower because you've already developed more in college. When, like... 
every NBA player develops until they're about 28, and then they kind of plateau at that point. And then they really, if they're really good players, they continue to add components to their game. But most guys are developing for like another six years after that. And your age, your, your age usually is an indicator. If you're already good at 18, you're probably going to be really good. Sure. But just because you're good at 22 doesn't mean that your upside is significantly limited and you're going to stop growing when you're 25. I mean, there's no there's no low ceiling on heel just because it took him until he's 22 to become a really good player. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And it's like. We, we see some of the best players in today's league came out as juniors and seniors, guys like Draymond Green and Jerry Butler. And granted, you can say that about freshmen and sophomores and kids who came out of high school, too. But I think kind of the misconception is, I mean, some of the data models that look at this, they don't look at the fact, and this is something that I might study at some point this summer, they don't look at the fact that the top players out of high school are the guys who leave school early. So that's why, historically, the best players, the best draft picks, come out as freshmen or in the past out of high school because those guys are already the best players. They don't stay until they're juniors and seniors. So, but there's some guys who are late bloomers. Just like, like look at a guy like this year, Wade Baldwin. He was an unranked high school recruit. It took him two years to make himself a lottery pick. I mean, he might not go lottery, but he'll he's borderline lottery. But he hailed. It took him four years. Who says he won't? He's just not a late bloomer. Not everybody becomes the premier player at 18. Some guys take, take longer. I think there's a chance Heald could be one of those guys. I mean, he's really, really intriguing because of his work ethic, and that's what you look for in any player. It doesn't matter for, about their age. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, Avery Bradley and Harrison Barnes were number one guys coming out of high school, and they had a rough freshman years. They got it back together second year. Uh, yeah, especially Harrison Barnes got it back together the second year, came out still under twenty or at twenty years old. These guys that are at the top of their high school classes are basically only not going to the NBA because they're required to, and of course that could change at some point. Who knows? But they're really it's the guys that are late bloomers, mostly because they needed a college structure to figure out how to develop how to develop their skill set. Those are the guys that look a lot better in their juniors in college or whatever it is. And then people think that they are maybe not as talented as those other guys that were at the top of their class. But really, for me, I'm looking when I'm recruit when I'm scouting a player is basically just how is he able to develop himself, not what are his natural abilities. I'm more I'm more interested in the guy that has proven that he could educate himself on the game and develop himself. Yeah, I mean that's all the personality stuff too. I mean, I think. I mean, some people say the Effie Combine, the interviews are more important than anything that happens on the court. And that's probably true because the most important thing is getting to know these kids and who they are and what they value, what's important to them, um, whatever it may be. I mean, how much they love basketball, how much they're willing to try new things um, when it comes to technique or fundamentals or taking on a different role. Because so much of the NBA or even in life, it's about being in the right situation at the right time, and kind of being able to be ready to take advantage of your opportunity. And some guys don't have the mentality for that, but other guys do. I mean, it's just going to be interesting to see, I think, this year's draft more than anything, like where these guys land. I think that's why it's so hard to project because that's what determines success so often. And there's going to be some major busts in the late lottery or the first round just because guys landed in the wrong spot. 
That's what's something I've been very curious about. And I was actually reading a piece, I think it was Adam Himmelsbach from a year ago, talking about the Celtics uh, scouting Marcus Smart. And they had been scouting him pretty much since he was a high school junior and really liked his personality. And there's a lot of focus on his personality and his work ethic. And you mentioned the draft combine uh, interviews. But do you know how else these teams go about trying to kind of evaluate the the kind of off-the-court aspects of these players? Because if you imagine that one draft interview, these kids might be nervous. It might not be the best way to assess it. But how are they going about it trying to kind of gauge who these people are, who these young college players are as people? I mean, I think every every team does it differently. I mean, some teams don't even have a sports psychologist. I don't think the Lakers have one. Other teams have, like, a designated sports psychologist that they rely on to – give their assessment of the player. Other teams use personality tests to test certain players. They, you know, look at data or things like that or personality profiles. But I think every team does it differently. Or like the Celtics, they have a guy called the Brain Doctor, and he has, like, certain brain types that he he assesses. Um, I don't know exactly what he does. But, again, like that's the thing. Like every team has different techniques, and some may be more effective than others. All right, I want to crack open the WEI Celtics tweet bag here. You can tweet your questions using hashtag WEI Celtics. And going back to Marquise Chris, Celtics and Chill, that's right, Celtics and Chill asks, Chris is now at number three on Draft Express. Do you consider this a change of opinion or some sort of inside information that made its way out into the uh, into the draft scouting sphere? First of all, Celtics and Chill, he's tweeted me before, and I have told him that he has the best Twitter handle. And his on name the is Bay Crowder, so I give him two thumbs up. He's a winner in my book. Yeah, he, I mean, it doesn't matter what he does on Twitter, he's awesome. But as for Chris, I, I really don't have any idea. All I know is when it comes to mock drafts, I'll say this openly the only mock drafts I care about are from Draft Express at ESPN. I do not care about my own mock drafts, I don't care about anybody else's mock drafts. But because those are the two sites that have the best sources, they are consistently the most accurate, those two are what you should start paying attention to in June. As for what BX knows, I don't know. But based on their track record, they're pretty good at being the best at predicting the draft. So I think it's important. What about our old friends, NBA Draft on Net? Don't you miss those guys? Yeah, that's yeah, BX and ESPN for mock drafts for me. <laughs> I completely agree. Okay, are mock drafts entirely uh, a crapshoot? Because even if they have great information, you never really know what's going to happen on draft night. It's not like the Celtics are telling Draft Express, "Yeah, we're really gonna, we're definitely gonna draft Marquise Chris here." Like, well, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it is still a crapshoot, but historically, Draft Express every year they have the most accurate mock draft. So I think that says something about the validity of their predictions. I mean, granted, they always have misses, but. I I think those two sites are at least somewhat trustworthy in terms of giving you a range of where these guys will go. So maybe, I mean, look, with Chad Ford, Chad Ford has had Marquise Chris ranked like 8th or ninth for months, which I think, you know, is a little bit high at certain points. But now you see Draft Express moving him up, so that maybe there's more of a consensus from NBA executives that this guy in this year's class, which doesn't have like a clearly defined 3 to 10 ranking, Maybe he's moving up at this point, and Ford just kind of had the intel ahead of time, and now Draft Express is getting it. We're just hypothesizing right now. Sure. But 
I mean, who knows? I think Chris could be moving up. He just seems like the type that would. All right, let's go over to some of the Celtics news that happened today. Before we even dive into the big ones, we got about five minutes left here. Celtics Hot Takes tweeted us a question about something that went by really quietly today, which is Sean Devaney reporting that Evan Turner fired his agent, David Falk. David Falk is probably an agent that everyone's heard of, but they're thinking, wait, why do I know that guy? It's because he has been, he's had more deals, I think, with Danny Ainge than pretty much any other agent uh, out there. And this is a pretty interesting move. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of variables at play to make that move. But what did you think of Turner doing that right before entering his big free agency? Yeah, it's weird because I remember reading, I think it was a Gary Washburn article two years ago when Turner first signed. And it was basically about how Falk wanted to put him in a situation with a coach that would let him play to his strengths. And that's exactly what we've, what we've seen the last two years. And obviously, like any agent, they want to get the most money and get and put them in the best situation they can. But maybe, at this point, Turner and Falk just have a disagreement on what they want this summer. Maybe Falk wants him to look elsewhere for a long-term four-year deal. Maybe Turner's like, nah, I want to stay in Boston for two years for less money. It, it's really hard for us to say, but there just must have been some type of disagreement on what's best for Evan's future. And maybe he found that with his new agent, who also happens to represent Amir Johnson. Exactly. And let's not forget that Jared Solinger also represented by David Falk, and there's only early bird rights on Evan Turner, while there's obviously the full restricted and bird rights on Jared Solinger. So mm-hmm. there, I don't want to draw any conclusions because we don't know Oh, yet. I'm going to draw a conclusion. <laughs> I talked to Evan Turner. I asked him if he wanted to come back, and uh, he said, I don't know. But it sounded like he kind of enjoyed clear cut answer, he right? Kind, yeah. kind of enjoyed his time here in Boston. So I'm gonna uh, just leap to that conclusion that he's gonna come back for a real, uh, real hometown discount. Okay, so here are the things we learned today when Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge announced that they had signed extensions. We learned that Danny Ainge had less than three years on his contract. It wasn't clear if it was two or if it was one. I've always posited that Danny Ainge has a immortal contract with the Celtics that carries on through his next few, uh, what do you call it, reincarnations. Lifetimes? There we go, reincarnations. So, Stevens extended for God knows how long, for God knows how much. Considering that he signed his deal a little bit below what the current market value is, and considering that they would like to lock him up for the rest of his uh, natural-born life, it, it's pretty safe to imagine they probably gave him a raise somewhere over $5 million a year. Now, the the interesting thing is basically Steven saying that he vetted this situation very carefully before he took it, and he had no interest jumping anywhere. While Steve Pagliuca, a Duke alum, made the joke that we didn't want to let Duke steal him away. So possibly there is a conversation between Mike Krzyzewski and Brad Stevens at some point where he said, hey, I'm going to leave at some point and you might be the guy to succeed me. Um, but I wanted to get just your overall opinions of what happened today. I think it's great for the Celtics, of course. Um, uh, for me, the main takeaway is, is it feels like they're taking a page out of the Patriots' playbook in regards to Bill Belichick's contract. They wouldn't release the terms for the years, so we really don't know how long it's for, and that makes you wonder if it's kind of like a, I don't want to say a lifetime contract. But it's Sounds like a blood that. oath. Sounds like they all took a blood oath. They all could cut be, their arms with switchblades, and they spit into it, and they said, <laughs> Celtics for life. <laughs> And got tattoos as well. Ooh, that'd be cool. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it could be the type of thing where it's just a, a super long-term contract, and maybe at some point it has an, an out. It could be a, co- a complicated contract. Um, e- either way, no matter what it is, I think, like I think was kind of talked about on Twitter today, it, it looks good to free agents, I think, to have 
front office and ownership and the coaching staff so connected. There's a lot of stability in the organization. And I think that's something Celtics fans should be ecstatic about because look at other teams like the Kings and the Grizzlies, and those teams don't have any stability. And I think that's what you need in any organization, sports or the business world, in order to have success. But they already were very stable. I, I really think that it's kind of ridiculous to – and I'm not saying what you're saying is ridiculous because it's a good well, point. All, but, yeah, like, they already were as stable as it got. But just now this tells every free agent out there, hey, if you sign a four-year deal with us, guess what? Brad's going to be here the next time it's time to re-sign you. You're right. I mean, it, it was obvious before, but now it may be super obvious to somebody who wasn't really paying that much attention. And I, and I don't know if every player does pay attention to it. Like, I mean, people are saying, oh, this will make Kevin Durant see how stable your organization is. But no, Durant, Durant, you can just listen to Durant talk, and you know that this is what he values. This is what he pays attention to. He doesn't even know this. It might be other players that may not have recognized it, and now they'll see this and scroll across ESPN at the bottom of the screen, and they'll hear it on a WEI radio station, and they'll know, okay, Celtics are stable. I want to go there. Well, if Kevin's listening, hey, there's a seat here waiting for you. <laughs> Steve Bullpet just tweeted, breaking news, he's hearing that Brad Stevens' extension is for three years, bringing him back up to six total. Oh, and Steve Bullpet's a pretty plugged-in man. Uh, he's a real steely-eyed missile man likes to work behind the scenes, so I'm, I'm going to take his word as Bond. Well, yeah, that's, that's that's pretty legit. I don't really get the whole dot disclosing the terms. Like, what proprietary information are do they, do they think they're like keeping, or what advantage do they get in not saying the terms? I don't. I just didn't understand why that is. I, I think I think it's just being secretive. Kind just of for the sake of it. Patriots, just just for the sake of it. Well, it, I mean, it has a competitive advantage that it, it helps if they wanted to pay him a lot. It keeps the market down for whatever other maneuvers they want to make. And it's – it's I mean, for one, it's the guy's salary. If he doesn't want to put it out there, then it's great. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, a lot of, they have to put the player's salary out there. Sure. What makes the coaches or the GM different? Uh, I think they're not obligated to for, for those guys. Well, and poppycock. And really, it's it, – most of the time it gets leaked, I think. It's usually leaked. It's not often the team officially – discloses what the terms of the contract are. Oh, that's fair. Uh, my last point about that whole press conference is, why are those guys drinking Gatorade? Why do they set up Gatorade after each press conference for the front office? Sponsorship deal. Yeah. But uh, They're not sweaty at all. They don't need any <laughs> electrolytes. It makes no sense. Just put out some water. I mean, after this interview, I'm sure Kevin could use some Gatorade. Kevin... I could use some Gatorade right now, but... That's are you guys not... sponsored by Gatorade? I wish. We are now. <laughs> we're to the highest offer. No, we're sponsored by RC Cola, like the Little League World Series. <laughs> Because that's what kids need when they're playing sports is a lot of cola. All right, Kevin, we've uh, we've held you a little bit too long here, but we're going to get you out of here. I want some quick hitters. Who are the Celtics going to draft at 16? Go. Um, if I'm the GM, if I'm Danny Ainge, you are. I'd, I'd like to draft Denzel Valentine at number 16. But you have him in your top 10. How on earth is he going to fall there? I don't know if other teams feel the same way about him that I do. I don't think they do. And, you know, another quick hitter, Jamal Murray, he is in play for the Celtics at three by just about everyone else in the world, except for you. You have him down outside of the top ten in your draft board. What gives? I just He I sucks. He, yeah, he's just not that good of a defender. <laughs> and Look, I mean, Jamal Murray can shoot the hell out of the ball, right? But I don't, I don't see them taking a underdeveloped, at right now, right now at this time, an underdeveloped one-dimensional player who doesn't defend, Agree. who isn't a passer, Agree. who is a limited athlete. I just 
don't okay. think it makes any sense. And I honestly, I for the life of me, I cannot understand why people want him at number three for the Celtics. I, I just don't get it. Because he can shoot, and they want someone that can shoot, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, and I think it's because he's a, he went to Kentucky. He has the status exciting. of you know, he's a damn top recruit. Super yeah, excited. There's, there's about twelve guys that take over at him. All right, that's Kevin O'Connor. You can find him uh, with me over at Celtics Blog. You can find him at Comcast Sports in New England. You can find him at about.com. You can find him talking about the draft 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just text Kevin in the 3 in the morning, and I guarantee you he will respond. Or Cyberdust him, better yet. That's the best way to get in touch. Everybody should use Cyberdust. Hey, man, that's that my favorite be, way to talk. Kevin's got <laughs> secrets that he doesn't want the people to know. Hey, Kevin and I have been Cyberdusting. It's a lot better. I, know you guys I like it a lot. both got secrets. Yeah. Cyberdust is pretty great. All right. Mark, 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 go Mark Cuban. You guys can download Kevin's latest edition of the NBA Draft Guide from Celtics Blog, or I'm sure you can find it on the internet if you're at all listening to a podcast. Just figure it out. You don't need me to spell it out for you. And it only costs you $10, and it will make you way more informed than any other person that you know, and you can pretend to be a podcast host just like us. Kevin, peace out, buddy. Thanks for having me, guys. Yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the crib. Just a little something, show you how we live. Everybody want it, but it ain't that serious. Mm-hmm. That's that. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. All right, welcome back to the second half of the WEI Celtics podcast. We are now in the studio via phone with Mr. Danny LaRue. How are we doing today, Danny? Doing well. How are you guys? So apparently we've slept a little bit more than you now that our season over here is over and you are in the throes of the Warrior Mania. And I'm sure everyone here at some point has seen that it is an absolute carnival shit show following the Warriors around this year. And now they're in the finals after a really historically epic comeback. And what is what has it been like covering this team over the past month? Well, it hasn't been that different than it was the rest of the year. I mean, it's been intensely different than it was for the first, you know, five and a half years I covered the team. But it's been a crowd basically forever since then. And for me, once you hit a certain critical mass, it doesn't really matter beyond that point. You know, you're when there are so many people that not everybody's going to get to ask a question and you can't, you have to like scrunch into here. It doesn't really matter if it's 20 or 40 people. Okay, so you're covering for Sporting News, The Athletic, NorCal, which you've been generous enough to let me also contribute to. Uh, you have the Dunked On basketball podcast and Nate Duncan. You have the Real GM podcast. How Do you eat at all? Do you sleep ever? Do you ever sit down? Or are you just like on a unicycle constantly motioning through life? Eat, yes. Sleep, barely. Sit, a lot, surprisingly. Um, that, that a lot of what I do requires sitting. So, because oh, we're I, standing right now recording this podcast, you got to get on. Well, your feet. actually, so am I. So, but but usually I'm not. Okay. All okay. right. So the uh, the Warriors just came back from three one, and they're heading into the finals against the Cleveland Cavaliers, the team they played last year in the finals. And when I was looking at this series, uh, other than Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love uh, now being on the roster for the Cavs. I was struggling to figure out how this series is going to play out any differently than the last series. It feels like the Warriors have the lineup of death, and the Cavs don't really have an answer for it. So is there any reason why you think the the Cavs will possibly win this series or kind of change the, the outcome of last year's finals? 
Well, sure. Cleveland's offense is substantially better. They have a lot better personnel. I mean, not only Kyrie and Kevin Love, but also J.R. Smith is playing better, and they added Channing Frye. And while all of those players have weaknesses, particularly defensively, they can score a lot. And something that, while it was incorrect about people said about the Warriors for years, is that when a team shoots a lot of threes and scores a lot, they do have that kind of a variance. And so, if you know, if the Cavs shoot 50% from three and make 20 of 40, let's say, they can win games against the Warriors. And the Warriors are inconsistent sometimes defensively. I mean, they're still very good, but they can do that. And Cleveland, while they are, you know, I think they were 10th in the league in defense efficiency this year, they can turn it on a little bit. They have some guys, they have some guys who can defend it. We'll have to see who they play, but they do have guys who can do that. And LeBron James is still LeBron James. So Billy Donovan severely shortened up and tightened up their rotation for the Thunder, and it worked phenomenally for at least the first five, really first five and a half games. Cleveland has done really well by using nine to ten guys. Uh, I mean, they they get a little bit of Delvadova, a little bit of Shumper, a little uh, actually a pretty good amount of Channing Frye, but their core is really relying on obviously their big three. But J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson have been their go-to guys, and the line in that lineup of those five guys has played more minutes than any other team in the playoffs so far. So, do you see the Cavaliers still going nine deep and kind of trying to like very frequently rotate through their lineups to try to, you know, if the Warriors are able to figure out how to deal with their or how to take advantage of their cross matches on pick and rolls and dribble handoffs and so forth, and then do you see? Ty Lue making a quick substitution to try to disrupt that, or are the Cavaliers going to do the same thing that the Thunder did and really tighten it up to seven guys, really, and just play everybody 40 minutes? I think that it will depend on who Lue trusts within that series. I think something that was really interesting about Toronto was that Kevin Love found his way out of the fourth quarter rotations a little bit, and Lue had that weird thing about how, oh, it would have been unfair to bring him back in in game four in a hostile environment, which is ludicrous. But one thing that, that you can call it a positive or negative, I'd say it's largely positive for Lewis, that if a guy is not playing well, he can find his way out. And so what makes the Cavs different than the Thunder is that they have a larger group of people who are all about the same quality. They bring different things to the table. You know, Del is a good basketball player. He should, be, uh, he should at least get a chance. J.R. Smith, Shump, all those guys. So whereas with Thunder, all the guys that were on their periphery aren't, weren't good enough to play in the series. So I think that they will draw that line differently. However, Lou, like almost every other young coach, will go to the guys that he's more comfortable with, and that's something Coach Kerr will do as well. So who does Kevin Love guard in the fourth quarter, or does he even play in the fourth quarter? If he plays, I think he guards Harrison Barnes. Agreed. So what what do they do? Is it he's is he staying loose off of Harrison Barnes and trying to basically play a zone between the lane on the assumingly the weak side where Barnes is going to live and then trying to charge out of Barnes when he gets open threes or are they just going to keep him stuck to Barnes and just trying to deal with the fact that he's not going to be that effective and try to defend four on four? I think that they'd probably try to have him help as much as they can, but what will be really interesting is if the Warriors try to counter that, as I kind of expect they would, by starting to use Barnes as a screener. They actually did that in Game 6 of the final of the conference finals against the Thunder because Curry, for whatever reason, wanted Serge Ibaka on switches, and so they were basically he was rejecting Draymond screens and going to Harrison Barnes screens. And the beauty of that, if they're put, if Cleveland is putting Kyrie on Curry, is that they're both bad pick-and-roll defenders, so any space that is being created by that screen is probably enough. 
So it, I think a lot of it will depend on what the what the overall personnel is. But I would expect to see Harrison Barnes used in a different way than he's been most of his season. We saw in the Thunder series, the Thunder were a really bad matchup for the Warriors because of their, one, their ability to switch and get out and play with their longer guys, play pretty solid perimeter defense, and at the same time offer that rim protection. The Cavs don't really have those type of players. Neither, you don't really imagine that if they're playing pick and roll, the Cavs are going to do a lot of switching. You'd probably think they're trapped in the corner, and then it's a lot of the four-on-three that we saw last year. If you had to pick the five best defensive players for a Cavs lineup, uh, who do you think that would be? I don't think it would be Kevin Love. No, it would be actually be very similar to the five they had last year, which is part of what will make these series different. So Del Vidova, LeBron, Tristan Thompson, Shumpert would definitely be a part of it. Because, I mean, if Mozgov's 100% physically, I'd have him instead of Tristan. And that last spot, huh, that, that's, a, that's a hard one. Um, I'd probably go with JR just because you're a little bit quicker and the Warriors don't really use size in that way. It's not like they're going to post up. Like if Draymond Green posts up JR Smith or something, that's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, JR is going to make some mistakes offensively, but isn't his recovery speed worth at least something against this team where sometimes you just want to have that guy that's just quick enough to recover onto an open three point shooter on the weak side? Absolutely. And something I've felt with JR for a long time, and they've used this which is a parallel to Dion Waiters, who actually did a good job at certain moments of the OKC series, is he's somebody who, if they give him a, a simple assignment, so basically you stay on this guy and you have no help responsibilities, I think he can do a pretty good job. And the person I would do that with is probably Clay Thompson. So you do that and you basically just say, that's all you're doing. You're not going to help. You have no other responsibilities. And he can channel the physical gifts that he does have into that and you take away from the things that he does poorly. I'm not sure if Lou is willing to do that just because the Warriors are a team that that requires so much defensive attention. So, you know, saying to somebody, oh, you can't, you, you don't have any help responsibility, especially when they're not on Steph Curry, is a lot to ask. It's like it's a very gutsy defensive scheme, but they might try it. Now, the Warriors have rotation questions of their own. We saw in Game 6 in the second half, they went with Iguodala, then he started in Game 7. It's something that they went to last year in the finals. Do you expect Iguodala to be starting um, for Harrison Barnes in Game 1? I do. There, the reason that you want to do that, is, well, there's a couple things, but the biggest one is that you want to align his minutes most closely with LeBron James. And when he is coming off the bench, especially if LeBron's going to sit at the end of the first quarter, which he often does, then you're you're missing not only the first part of the first and third quarters, but you're also missing the second part of that. You know, the end of that quarter. So you you just you miss out on a lot of opportunities with that. I'm not sure they'll play Iguodala as many minutes as they did in Game Seven and in the NBA Finals last year because he was actually in the low 40s. Because his minute high in the regular season in a regulation game was I think 34 minutes. But he can handle it for a couple days. And also something that really benefits the Warriors in this series with the format is that there's only one time where the games even have only one day between them. They're mostly two and three days off. So they can give him, and I'm sure that's good for LeBron too, just give them a little bit more rest. So who are the other – so I'm assuming Iguodala is going to play probably 20 minutes on LeBron at least. Are you rotating Clay over to LeBron, or is uh, is it just going to be Barnes as the other guy on him? I mean, Livingston can do it. Dre could do it. It depends on who else is on the floor for their bigs, of course. I think Draymond will do it a fair amount because he can. And depending on what, I think a lot of it will also depend on what form Cleveland wants their offense to take. If they're doing more pick and roll stuff, 
then you'll probably see Clay Thompson on switches and things like that. You'll see some things like that. But if they're going more in the isolation sense, which is what I expect they'll do, I think they'll you know have LeBron iso on somebody and then try to use that to create a seam for an open shot for somebody else. Draymond is the most logical other guy there, especially because Harrison Barnes struggled a lot with LeBron last year. All right, this is a question that you asked for this uh, Q&A that we're going to be doing on The Athletic uh, for tomorrow. I won't spoil all of it, but this one I think is a great question. Who is the most important non-star player in this series? I think it's, it's Jared Smith, and the reason for that is that he, is, he has the most volatility. You know, the, what, what you're looking for sometimes in a, in a player who's important is where it's not only their centrality to team success, because, of course, we took out the stars for that question, but also what the difference between their high and their low is. I mean, when is on, he's an incredible player for what Cleveland is doing. He can't run the offense, but he doesn't have to, and he can be pretty good defensively. And so most of the other Warriors and most of the other Cavs are a little bit more consistent. Like, you can think about Della Vidova or Tristan or... Harrison Barnes for the Warriors or Guadalla, but J.R. Smith can be super high or super low, so I think that's why he's the most important. All right, Danny, we're going to go to the WEEI Celtics uh, Twitter mailbag. Um, we have two from one of our uh, one of our favorite people, Danger Cart. In the days of Freedom Fries, when, were you tempted to change your name to Danny the Rue? Well, it would be the Red because my it, it's the Redhead, but no, I mean, I, I, I'm proud of my heritage. That's fair. I was not part of the Coalition of the Willing, and neither was Danny the Red. Hey, I didn't work at the Pentagon in 2005, so I wasn't doing it. Then the other question Danger Cart wanted to know, this was a CBA question, was should owners fight to make players wear their Xmas jerseys on Xmas even if they aren't playing? So if you're sitting at home in your PJs and you're under an NBA contract, should you be obligated to wear your Xmas jersey for your team? No, Um, but it'd be fun. If they have to do that, I mean, but aren't they going to be at the arena anyway? Because they don't sell Christmas jerseys for teams that don't play on Christmas, do they? We just saw a release of a Celtics mock-up. I don't know if it was a, a, an official NBA jersey, but the, from the Celtics haven't played on Christmas in years. But you're, it's a valid point, Danny, a valid point. And I will have to take that back to Danger Cart for some, some reason. Here's, here's what I'll say. Anybody who uses that person's name as their name on Twitter, if it's not their actual name, they have to wear that jersey to, to Christmas. Oh, I like that. That's good. So is there, a, is there a Danny LaRue super fan out there that has to wear a Danny LaRue Christmas jersey? If they are, then they do. <laughs> there we go. Um, all right, so my last question for you before we even ask for predictions is do you think that this series is dramatically different than last year considering how different Cleveland is? It is in some ways. I, I think that Cleveland has a lot more upside. Like last year, except for that, you know, how, how kind of badly the Warriors played early on, after game three it kind of felt like the series was going to go a certain way. The Cavs just weren't good enough. They can have, they have more talent now, so I can see it. But the same kind of structural flaws that Cleveland had in terms of handling the Warriors defensively, those are still there. All right, my last question is the Warriors are without their greatest X Factor and your dad's favorite player, uh, David Lee. And he had, we saw him make a huge impact last year. So who's going to be that player, uh, either off the bench or the kind of unexpected player for the Warriors you think could make a big impact on this series? Sean Livingston makes the most sense. He had a really bad Western Conference Finals because Oklahoma City just doesn't have personnel to make it work for him. But the Cavs do. You know, they have guys who he can post up and he can feel comfortable with that. 
and I, I think he could have a good series. And even though I don't think he should play at all, most spates is worth considering just because he's volatile. And it's also funny because I believe both of those guys were on the Cavs at some other points in their career. That's true. Wow. That's it. That's incredible. See, the, the Cavs diaspora is coming back to bite them. Uh, so I have the Warriors in seven in another epic. How, what is your call for this series? Warriors in six. I, I don't think home court matters that much in this. Warriors one and six last time, but both both teams are capable of winning on the road and losing at home. So, like you know, a lot of people like to say more comfortably, "Oh, you're going to go one way or the other." And I predicted Warriors in six last round, and if I had gone the same way, seven would have been right. But I, I think the Warriors are just a little bit better defensively, in particular, and so. You know, maybe maybe they'll lose one one at home early, but they'll end up kind of in a similar pattern to last year, just pulling it out in six. So is it is it like a Cavs over the Raptors kind of game six slaughter, or is it going to be like just like the Thunder series was, where every single game is a marathon of misery and pressure and incredible performances? I think it's going to be kind of a mix of the two. I think that there will be a couple of blowouts, maybe one maybe one Warriors blowout early and maybe a Cavs like 10-point comfortable win, late, win in, in Cleveland. But I think the rest of it will be a little bit nick, nip and tuck. But one thing to watch in this series is that the Warriors this year have been one of the best clutch teams in recent NBA history. And the Cavs have been better than average. They've been better than like positive in that sense, but they haven't been that immense positive. And that actually makes sense when you think about their personnel. So if teams are close late, I think that meaningfully helps the Warriors. You know what, screw this. Two more minutes. Tell me, as an, as someone watching Golden State from the other side of the country, Clay Thompson has put on one of the best playoff performances in the last decade. Is the, uh, Someone that's right there up close, do you think that he's really been that incredible? Yes. The biggest thing that I think is being really underappreciated about him is he has taken on some brutal defensive assignments in this, and he's also shouldered a heavy offense load because Stephen Curry missed basically the first two series for the Warriors. So he was defending some of the most potent def- potent offensive players in the entire league. Damian Lillard, Russell Westbrook, the last two rounds. He bounced around with Harden mostly in, in the first round and was also their most important offensive player. And I'd say LeBron is probably the playoff MVP so far, but Klay Thompson is second. And that's incredible when you think that for the majority of this season, he was the third best player on his own team. And Thompson didn't really have a huge impact in the finals last year, so you'd have to think if he gets it going or has one of his large three-point shooting performances, it's heavy favorite for the for the Warriors. Well, and that's going to be one of the big differences between the finals last year and this year is that if Lou is more comfortable with J.R. Smith on him. I mean, Schumpert did a fantastic job on Clay last year, and Clay is somebody who relies a lot on comfort. And so if he feels like he can get shots off over J.R. Smith, he will shoot it, whether they're open or not, which is actually similar to J.R. So if J.R. doesn't, doesn't stay on him in that way, then we could see some big Clay games. All right, that was Danny LaRue from, you can find him on Sporting News, you can find him at The Athletic, where uh, I will be participating tomorrow in a uh, experts roundtable where we, a lot of great writers, guys like Nate Duncan, Seth Partnow, although actually Seth uh, just announced today that he is working for the Milwaukee Bucks now, so congratulations to him. Is he going to be on the Q&A for tomorrow? He will not. He is not allowed to anymore. Oh, well, that's good for him. I'm very happy to hear that. 
if you if you haven't been to Seth over at Nylon Calculus, he's one of the best writers you out missed, there. You missed your and chance. Now you missed your chance, but there's plenty of content to look back in the in the past. Danny, uh, we can find you on Twitter at Danny Larue L E R O U X. Where else can uh, anything else you want to promote? Well, I have a Facebook page uh, for my writing. It's Danny LaRue NBA. And so that combines, because I write a whole bunch of different places and podcast different places, so I try to put everything there pretty soon after it comes out. So you can just, if you want to just have it in one place, it's there. And, of course, you guys have been doing the Dunked On podcast uh, with Nate Duncan, I think, pretty much every single day during the playoffs, right? And it's an absolute must-listen for a breakdown of every single game. And also the Real GM podcast where Danny and I last week previewed the Celtics offseason. So there's lots of places you can find Danny, and you might see my name there, too. So that's how you know he's good. Danny, thanks for joining us, man. Anytime. Thanks for having me. All right, that will do it for us here on the WEI Celtics podcast. So for our guests, you can find Kevin O'Connor at Kevin O'Connor NBA. You can find him on Celtics blog. You can find him everywhere. And download his NBA draft guide. Pay that $10. You know what? I just thought of something. I'm going to channel my inner Shea Serrano here. Be the first one, first five people who tweet me an image of you buying Kevin O'Connor's NBA draft guide, and I will, I'll buy it for you. I'll pay that for $10. If you show me an image of your purchase receipt of Kevin O'Connor's NBA draft guide, guess spread the love, people. So at Sam Packard NBA, show me that picture. I'll follow you. I'll DM you. I'll get you on PayPal, and I'll buy that draft guide for you because I want you to have it. And Shea Serrano's a cool dude, and he's inspired me to do this right now. All right. You should sign up for Shea Serrano's uh, basketball newsletter. If it's you incredible. haven't read his uh, erotic story about featuring Kawhi Leonard, then you... Do it right now. It's the greatest thing I've ever read. I hit him up earlier tonight hoping to get him on, but it was probably too late to get a hold of him. But hopefully we can get him to do a live reading sometime. That would be very, very funny. It would be absolutely amazeball. So absolutely go find Kevin O'Connor's draft guide. Send it to me. I'll pay for it because I believe in that content and you got to pay it forward. Um, so Kevin O'Connor at Kevin O'Connor NBA, I believe. Correct. Thanks again to Danny LaRue. You can find him at Danny LaRue on Twitter. Uh, for joining us, I'm Sam Packard. Again, at Sam Packard NBA. I'm Jared Weiss, CLNS underscore Jared Weiss. So subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher. You can find us at, at WEI.com on the CLNS Radio mobile app. Uh, you could find us in your ear holes pretty much anywhere. If you just shout my name out really loud over the mass pike, you'll probably hear me respond back. All right, so we'll be back in two weeks, maybe a week. Who knows? But we'll talk about Maybe there'll happened. be another surprise announcement. Maybe Isaiah Thomas signs a 30-year deal, which is not allowed under the CBA. But who knows what's going to happen? Anything that happens, we'll break it down for you here on the WEI Celtics Podcast.
You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hyundai, 